Hey guys, welcome to Veritas and the coldest day in human history, apparently. Glad everybody's here, made it through the cold. If you don't know me, my name's Austin. I'm a pastor at a church called The Crossing, one of the directors of Veritas. Whether it's your first time here, your hundredth time here, uh, glad that you're joining us, encouraged you're joining us, taking time out of your busy schedule to come and worship with us and study uh, what Jesus has to say to us tonight in the Bible. Came across a really interesting story this week about a guy named Eric Stagno. He walked into his local Planet Fitness gym, read the slogan and thought, huh, okay. Walked around, found a good spot to camp out, rolled out a yoga mat, proceeded to take off all of his clothes and started doing the downward facing dog in whatever yoga position you can imagine. Understandably, lots of other people saw this and immediately did the right thing, called the cops. The cops showed up and they arrested him and charged him with indecent exposure and disorderly conduct, rightfully so. His only comment, they asked him, what were you thinking? His only comment was that he thought this would be a, quote, judgment-free zone. Why do you think that? Well, he read Planet Fitness's logo. Check it out. All over the machines, it says, you belong, the judgment-free zone. So he read that and thought, hey, let me take my clothes off and do yoga, right? We, story teaches us a lot of things. Number one, don't do drugs. But number two, it teaches us the importance of knowing the right expectations, okay? Judgment-free zone doesn't really mean judgment-free zone. You get it. But I tell that story because here at Veritas, we have started a new series called Uncomfortable. And the reality is that following Jesus is going to be an uncomfortable process in all sorts of ways. But if you expect following Jesus will be easy and it'll be no big deal and it's not going to require much of you other than maybe go to a small group every now and then, maybe go to church or Veritas once a month, do a good deed here and there, pick up a Bible every I don't know, every couple of days, if that's your expectation of what it's going to be like to follow Jesus, I think you're going to be disappointed, and I don't think you're going to be following Jesus very long. You see, if we're going to follow Jesus for the long haul, then we've got to have the right expectations. We've got to expect and be ready for a long, difficult, and uncomfortable road ahead of us. And so that's why over the next four weeks, we're going to unpack ways in which being a part of a Christian community, part of a group of people, messy, imperfect, broken, and yet following Jesus is going to be uncomfortable. Now, let me be honest with you guys just for a minute. I hope you know that I know, and anybody else who stands up here and gives a, a talk, we know how uncomfortable your lives are right now. I know that a lot of you are graduating in May and you're still looking for that internship, still looking for a job. I know a lot of you have a job on top of your classes, on top of serving, on top of being a friend. I know a lot of you have health problems and car troubles and sin struggles. I know a lot of you are trying to make it through life while battling depression, while battling anxiety, while battling all sorts of other addictions. I know a lot of you are adjusting to a new culture, a new city, a new campus, and you're just trying to make it through your week. Your lives are already uncomfortable. I, I hope you know that I know that. And so me standing up here, the last thing I want to do is just tell you, to, hey, buck up. Sorry, here comes another punch in the face. Oh, well. 
right? We're not going through this series just so you guys can be uncomfortable for its own sake. The reason that we are doing this series is because we believe Jesus meets us in our discomfort. You see, when you study the scriptures, over and over again, that truth shows up. Jesus tends to work in and through the uncomfortable situations in our lives in ways that comfortable situations don't. And since our number one goal here at Veritas is to see your love for Jesus grow and to see you and me learn to love him and live for his kingdom together in ways that we didn't before, that's why we're committed to this series. That's why we're asking you and me to wade into these uncomfortable situations, to not run away from them, talk about, lean into, reflect on uncomfortable topics. That's why we're doing it. And tonight, we're going to see that being a part of this community, the aspect we're going to study, when you're part of a Christian community, you are faced with uncomfortable truth. Now, we could spend months on the uncomfortable truths that if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you have to face. We're going to stick with one tonight. I think we all would be pretty uncomfortable if we went to the doctor before a big surgery and we had this conversation with him. Maybe some of you, probably a lot of you have seen this. Let's take a look. Have you ever worked for Dr. Francis? Oh, yeah. He's okay. Just okay? Guess who just got reinstated? Well, not officially. Nervous? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. I'll see you in there. Just okay is not okay, especially when it comes to your network. Favorite line, you nervous? Yeah, me too. (laughs) Right? Just okay is not okay when it comes to our surgeons because we expect them to be perfect, rightfully so. There's lots of other areas and, and ways that we expect perfection in life, right? Our car mechanics, they better be perfect. There's a commercial for that. It's funny. Our autopilots, autopilots? Airline pilots. Autopilot, we're all autopilots that we drive, right? Airline pilots, they better be perfect. Skydiving instructors, you better be on that day, right? So it's not uncommon for us to expect for perfection from people, but I wonder, I wonder what would happen if that expectation was turned around and applied to us. What do you think would happen? Has anybody ever applied a standard of perfection to you? How'd that go for you? How'd that go for them? To be honest, it's their own fault that they expected you to be perfect because you can't be perfect for someone. You're going to let them down. You're going to disappoint them. So it's their own fault. Have you ever held yourself to a standard of perfection? Author and and professor Richard Winter, he wrote a book called Perfecting Ourselves to Death. Really good book. And there's this quote in there that I love. It says, defeated perfectionists, that's just people who have turned that expectation of perfection on themselves, people who try to be perfect, they often become victims of their own high standards. They carry in their heads, partially subconscious, a picture of who they want to be and who they firmly believe they can and should be, their ideal self. But failure comes and they perceive themselves as total disasters, despicable, unreliable, incompetent people. And he goes on to explain the result of this is that on the one hand, we've got this ideal self. It's the self that we look up there and we strive to be and we know that we should be and we want to be. But then on the other hand, in the day-to-day trenches of life, we've got our perceived self, the person that we so often feel that we are, the disappointment, right? The person who can't do anything right, the shame, 
that weighs on us. Now, I think everybody in this room, to one degree or another, you get that dynamic, right? We can identify with this reality of the ideal self way up there. There's what I want to be, but here I am, down in the trenches. This is who I am. And there's that gap, right? You experience your perceived self as somebody who's not living up. You're always feeling. You're always going to be a disappointment. You always need to do better. Have you felt that? Are you feeling that right now? That's a difficult reality, to live with. And interestingly, the Bible actually picks up on this reality and explains, gives an explanation to the root cause of why that gap exists. New Testament book of 1 John, chapter 1, verse 8 says this, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him, that's God, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. Romans chapter 3, another New Testament book. The Apostle Paul writes, Jews and Gentiles alike, in other words, everybody on the planet, are all under the power of sin. As it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. Nobody understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. There's no one who does good, not even one. Now, it turns out that the main reason, not the only reason, But the main reason, the root cause of this gap between our ideal self and our perceived self, not living up to that standard that we want to be, is because of our sin. We're unable to live up to God's way of life. See, whether you know it or not, God intended life in this world to be lived a certain way. He created everything, and he created it good, and you get a picture of what that life should have been like in Genesis 1 and 2. But chapter 3, if you keep reading, the biblical story turns out to be a story of rebellion, of deviation from that plan towards our own plan. Why? Well, because we wanted it, because of our own sin. And so now we can't live up to the standards. That's why the Bible says nobody's righteous, nobody does good, nobody lives up to what God commands of them. Why are we talking about this? Well, here's why. If those scriptures are true, which they are, And if that gap exists between our ideal self and our perceived self, which it does, and if it's completely unrealistic and unfair for anyone, let alone ourselves, to hold us to a standard of perfection, then why would Jesus say this? Matthew 5, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I might have just lost some of you. I realize that. I might have lost you because this might confirm everything negative that you've ever heard about Jesus and about Christianity. In your mind, look, there's no love here. There's no love in that verse. Christianity is just a bunch of back-breaking rules that nobody can live up to. I might have lost some of you because this proves to you that following Jesus is just a pipe dream. It is not rooted in reality. Nobody can be perfect. That's like me, someone coming to me and say, hey, guess what? You have to run the Kenyan world record marathon, 430 mile the whole time. I go, cool, you have fun with that. I'm going to go to McDonald's, get a sausage McMuffin, and sit on the couch and watch football, whatever. Right? It's unrealistic. I'm not going to do that. You have fun with that. I'll be over here eating McDonald's. Maybe I lost some of you, not because you disagree with that. You'd love to be able to do that. And even if you don't follow Jesus, you're intrigued by it. You want that to be true, but you can't do it. You've tried again and again, and all you do is come across a brick wall. You're banging your head against a wall of shame because you can't do it. The guilt is too much. You've tried and you can't. I get it. This is an uncomfortable truth. But is it possible that there's another way to interpret this? Is it possible that we've misunderstood it? I think so. 
I think so. And we need to ask three questions of this verse tonight. What does it mean? How is it possible? And why do we need to keep hearing it? So here's the first one. What is this truth? What does this verse mean? This verse is found in the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, right? And a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's just a biography of Jesus, story of his life and his teachings, right? So Matthew's the first gospel. And the place in this gospel where Jesus says it is in a section of scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, at this point in Jesus' life, he's on the scene. He's teaching, he's healing, he's doing miracles, casting out demons, and people are starting to get notice. His YouTube hits are starting to grow. His presence is growing, and people are taking notice. And so on this particular day, he sees the crowds starting to come, wanting to listen, wanting to learn, wanting to find out. He sees more and more people coming, and he decides that this, for whatever reason, this is a great opportunity to teach the core of what it means to follow me. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus. You want to sign up, then you got to know what is going to be asked of you to follow him, to be a member, to be a citizen of that kingdom. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. These teachings embody what Jesus, uh, what following Jesus should look like. They're essential and they are extremely uncomfortable. If you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, go read it. You want to be uncomfortable. That's an uncomfortable sermon. And so at the beginning of Matthew 5, they sat down to listen to him. Interesting, Kyle and Noel, uh, they went to Israel a couple years ago. This is actually a picture of where this sermon most likely took place. It's pretty cool. Sits down to all sorts of people. Doesn't pull any punches. And he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. What does that mean? So that word perfect in the original Greek, it has this sense of being mature, being fully grown, not lacking in any moral quality whatsoever. But but notice that verse, what it doesn't say, it doesn't say do perfect things. It says to be perfect. That speaks to a state of being. It speaks to the kind of person that we are at our core. And so to be perfect means more than just living up to some sort of external behavioral standard. Yes, it's that, but it means so much more. It's speaking about the quality and the character of the person that we are. So what that means, if you want to follow Jesus, it's not enough to do the right thing outwardly for the wrong thing inwardly. Not enough to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Nor is it okay to do the wrong thing to have, but to have good motives. Yeah, I stole. Yeah, I murdered. Yeah, I did whatever sin, but I did it out of love. I was just trying to look out for my family. That is not going to cut it. The model for this type of perfection that we learn also is our heavenly Father. It says heavenly Father. So God the Father is the first person of the Trinity. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you heard that. If you don't know, when you hear about God as the Trinity, that just means God is one being, but three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It doesn't make logical sense. Don't think about it too long. You're gonna make your eyes cross, right? But we just want to, that's what the Bible says about who God is. And so we want to uphold that and speak about God that way. He's perfect. God the Father is perfect in his being. And Jesus says that if we want to follow him, we need to set our sights on nothing less than seeking to be like him. You see, he calls his followers to be perfect, mature, fully grown in the same way that God the Father is perfect, mature, and fully grown. Let's let's bring this down to earth just a little bit, okay? So this be perfect statement, it comes at the end of a section of scripture in the sermon where Jesus goes through six statements, six areas of the life of the disciple 
and paints a picture of what it's got to be like. You want to follow me? Well, this is how it has to be like in this area, in this area, in this area. These are extremely relevant, extremely practical, extremely uh, relevant issues that these disciples had to follow. We're just going to stick with three. Anger, sexuality, and love. Anger. Matthew 5, verse 21. Jesus says, you've heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anybody who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You see, it's not just the outward act of murder that's condemned, but unjustified and selfish anger inside of our hearts. Sneering dismissals of people because you disrespect them or you disagree with them. Words spoken with the intention to harm. Those things, that unselfish, that selfish anger has no place in the life of a follower of Jesus. How about lust or sexuality? Matthew 5, verse 27 You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman or a man lustfully has already committed adultery with them in their heart, with her in his heart. Talk about an uncomfortable truth. That word lust, it means to have a sexual desire for someone. Now let me be clear, being sexually attracted to somebody is not the problem. We've been wired by God to experience those feelings. We've got brains. We've got the parts, right? We have been created by God with the ability to be sexually aroused. That's not a bad thing. In fact, it's actually good because God created it and set it up to be that way. Here's the issue. The issue is what to do with that attraction and when to do it. You see, those thoughts those feelings, those experiences, those are meant to be indulged, explored, and pursued physically in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman and nowhere else. And so rather than indulge that attraction for the person and use them for our own personal pleasure in our thoughts, in our actions, Jesus calls us, calls his followers, anybody who wants to follow him, to have self-control and to stop that indulgence. But if we don't stop that indulgence. If we see a beautiful or attractive image of a person who is not our spouse in our hearts and in our minds, and we say of that person, I want them. They're beautiful, and I want them for my own means, my own pleasure, then we've committed the sin of adultery. Sometimes this happens in our minds, whether or not the other person knows. Sometimes this is acted out physically between consensual partners who aren't married, but... But if that desire is indulged, explored, or pursued outside the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, then Jesus says, we've committed the sin of adultery. I might have lost some of you again, and I get it. I might have lost some of you because maybe you have family members. Maybe you have close friends, people that you love and respect and are great people who don't hold to this view. In fact, are living a life very the opposite, very contrary to this view, and they don't hold to it. I might have lost others of you because right now you're in a relationship where you are experimenting sexually and you're not going to stop and you don't want to hear anything else. I, I get it. I understand what I'm saying. I know how crazy and unattainable and naive and counterculture and even disrespectful this might seem. And if you failed, trust me, you're in good company. I failed. I think it's safe to say that we all have failed. And yet this is the uncomfortable truth that Jesus holds his followers to in the area of our sexuality. 
Last one is love. Matthew 5, verse 43. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Isn't it interesting? Such a controversial verse on the one hand, and then this is one that everybody loves. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. More on this next week. But suffice it to say, Jesus is not going to let his followers love the people who love us. Only love the people who love us. Anybody can do that because it's comfortable to do so. No, Jesus holds his followers to something much more uncomfortable, loving the people who don't love us. Be perfect in your anger. Be perfect in your sexuality. Be perfect in your love. Turns out that Mark Twain, famous author, turns out he was right. He once said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. So if you're bothered right now, if you're uncomfortable, then you're starting to get it. See, when we sign up to pursue Jesus, we sign up for the pursuit of perfection, the pursuit to be like God the Father and nothing left. God wants the entirety of our lives as individuals and as a community to be lived in that way because that's the way that he wants it. Why does he want it this way? Well, because he knows what's best for us. Do you believe that? I mean, in an honest moment, don't put on a front. Don't imagine you're talking to me, a pastor, or maybe your friend who wants to hear it. Think about it just for a second. Do you really believe that God knows what's best for you? Or do you think you do? We still got a problem on our hands, though. Let's recap, right? Okay, Romans 3 at the beginning. We saw... Nobody loves God. Nobody pursues God. No one's righteous, not even one. Matthew 5, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How does this happen? This is our second question. How can this be pursued? One word, grace. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, we read it as we were singing. It says, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's the same verb from Matthew 5. Listen to this. Jesus has secured the perfection that he requires of his followers. I'll say that again. Jesus has secured the perfection that he requires of his followers. You see, the crowning point of the entire biblical story, of the entirety of human history, happened almost 2,000 years ago when Jesus went to a cross willingly and died. His death atoned for or solved the problem of our sin. You see, that sin was a barrier in our relationship with God and our ability to carry out his commands. And when Jesus died on that cross, he wiped it away. He made a path so that now that that is possible. This means that when the God of the universe... When he looks at you, he doesn't see your perceived self. He doesn't even see your ideal self. You know what he sees? He sees his ideal image for you. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. Perfection, fully grown, mature. Do you believe that? Have you heard that? Do you feel that? My wife and I, We have three kids, seven-year-old, five-year-old, two-year-old, and bedtime at our house is a circus. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I should sell tickets for bedtime. People just come and watch. It's, It's crazy, but when we finally get them into bed after 10 or 30 minutes, Lord help us, this is what we say to them. Adeline, Tyler, Clayton, 
Do you know that I love you no matter the good that you do? Uh-huh. Do you know that I love you no matter the bad that you do? Uh-huh. Who else loves you like that? God. Even more than mommy and daddy? Uh-huh. Rest in that love. Rest in that love. That's what we tell them. And we tell them that because that's what God tells each and every one of his followers, of his children. I love you no matter the good that you do, no matter the bad that you do. Yes, Jesus expects perfection from his followers, but he does not expect it to happen immediately. Rather, he understands this pursuit to be a process. Look at the second half of, of Hebrews 10. For by one sacrifice he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Not those who are made holy right now instantly. No, those who are being made holy. To be made holy is just another way of saying that you're being formed into the person that God made you to be as an individual. And by extension, the community, the church, God's people globally. And here in this room, if you're a Christian, we are being made into the community of believers that God has made us to be. The pursuit of perfection is a process that is done in an environment of grace. Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore thou, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So for those of us who are following Jesus, when we get selfishly angry at the roommate, when we lust after our boyfriend or girlfriend, when you only love those who love you back, guess what? You're not condemned. You're not defined by those failures. You're shown grace. You're shown grace because in God's eyes, you're just like Jesus. You're perfect. You're not acting the way that you're supposed to be. And so because of that, because of that environment of grace in which this pursuit of perfection is worked out in, we can pick ourselves up when we fail. We can dust ourselves off and we can continue to be compelled by and drawn toward this pursuit of perfection of God's standards in every area of life. It's hard, it's difficult, it's uncomfortable. We're gonna fall and we're gonna fail, but because of the grace of Jesus, we can pick ourselves up. We can remind one another what is true about us, that we're loved and that we're not defined by our sin and that we can continue to keep going. Do you know that? Have you experienced that? Have you been told that? I hope so. If you're not following Jesus, if you're still unsure, if you still have a lot of questions, okay, fair enough, that's fine. But you need to know that you have an invite into this story, a standing invitation. There's nothing you can do or fail to do in your entire life from this moment on until the day that you die that will take that offer of grace off the table. Nothing. And if and when you want to follow Jesus, 51%, a little bit more than not, He's ready and waiting to accept you. But just know that when he finds you and when he gets you, he's not going to leave you as you are. He's going to expect you and he's going to expect us, everybody, to continue to pursue the perfection that he calls his followers to pursue. We're not there today, but by his grace, we're striving for it tomorrow. So to be a follower of Jesus, let's recap. To be a part of the community means that we commit ourselves to be perfect like God, our Father. This is done in an environment of grace. Why? Why do we need to keep hearing this again and again and again and again and again? Well, here's why. Two things. Number one, we need to hear it so we don't make peace with our sin. For some of us in here, the way that we deal with the uncomfortable call to be perfect is to lower the standard. People, people do that all the time. We lower the standard. Maybe we convince ourselves, you know what, did Jesus really say that? I'm not sure he did. Or even worse, we concede the point. We say, yeah, Jesus might have said that, but I don't care. 
I got better things to do. I don't want that. If we do that, then we are making peace with our sin. But, but what if sin is not making peace with us? Genesis, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7 says, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Could you imagine what would have happened to the American troops that are storming the beaches of Normandy on D-Day if they would have just given up, made peace, said, okay, we, we, we make peace, time out, that's it. They would have been slaughtered because the Germans were out for blood. The Germans were not about to make peace with the Americans. The same is true of our fight against sin. We can make peace with our sin if we want to, but sin is not gonna make peace with us. One of the unfortunate parts of my job of working with college students over the last 11 years is the students that I see make peace with their sin. I've got a lot of students that have done that. Well, one in particular stands out. Well, my, my roommate at my senior year of college grew up in a Christian home, was involved in church his whole life, was in a college ministry, was leading in a college ministry. And then he and myself and a bunch of other people turned 21, kind of like at the same time, started going out to the bars lived on East Campus, could walk there. What became a monthly trip to the bars, became a weekly trip to the bars, became a multiple times a week trip to the bars, became a let's have a discussion about what does it really mean to be drunk, which became a what does it really mean to have a legal drinking age, which finally, the last conversation I had with him, he said, bro, you just gotta stop judging me. Stop judging me. Stop telling me that God didn't want me to get drunk. Dude, God knows my heart. Yeah, that's true. God does know his heart, and unfortunately, time revealed where his heart really was. He joined Comedy Wars. It's a great group. It's funny in a lot of ways. We've had students over the years that have been involved. That's fine, but here's the problem. He joined Comedy Wars and cut off all other Christian community in his life. And the people in Comedy Wars at that time, they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. They made fun of Jesus and Christians and belittled them, and that started to affect him. To this day, he has a TV show where he goes around with his friends, goes around with people, gets high just for entertainment and films it. That's where he's at right now. It's clear, at least at this point in his life, that he would rather have the comforts of this life than pursue the perfection, the uncomfortable perfection that Jesus requires of his followers. Why did all this start? Because he made peace with the sin of drunkenness as a 21-year-old. I don't tell that story to manipulate you by any means, but to show you what can happen, to show you how subtle it is. Remember, it began as just a monthly trip to the bars. Then over time, it became a week. Over time, multiple times a week. And pretty soon, he started questioning things. Is that, is that you? Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's something else. Can you identify? Are there areas of your life where you are making peace with your sins? See, to be a part of a Christian community, to follow Jesus is to submit our lives under the authority of his teaching found in the Bible. And that is always going to be uncomfortable. That's why we need to continually remind ourselves to be perfect, to go, oh yeah, that's right. I can't settle for anything less. I have to continue. I want to continue to pursue the perfection God requires because I'm being made into his image. We also need to be reminded to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect, because it reminds us why we're here. Reminds us why we're here. The New Testament book of Philippians, chapter two, verse 14 says this. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. How's that for perfection? Right, let's insert any command, anything that Jesus requires of his followers. Insert that, why? 
Well, verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. See, this verse tells us, I think what we all know, that in a lot of ways the world is warped and it's crooked and it's broken, but God is in the process of fixing it, of putting it back into joint, of placing it and as it should be. He began that work by sending Jesus. He's continuing that work through a group of people known as the church. And we, when we as people commit ourselves to the pursuit of that perfection that Jesus wants, it's providing light to people living in a broken and a dark world. There's a story about a captain of a ship that was at sea at night. It's kind of stormy and dark and waves are all over the place. And he looked into the darkness and he saw a faint light in the distance. So he immediately sent a message out there because he didn't want to run into another ship. He said, alter your course 10 degrees south. Immediately the message come back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. Captain's kind of a little bit annoyed, a little bit angry because he's not used to being questioned. So he immediately sends another message back. Alter your course 10 degrees south. This is the captain speaking. Immediately another message comes back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. This is Navyman third class John McNeil speaking. At this point, the captain's enraged and he decides to send one last message that really communicates to this guy who he is. He says, alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm a battleship. Immediate response. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm a lighthouse. You get it, right? We live in a dark world that's lost at sea. There's all sorts of voices telling us where to go. There's all sorts of stories persuading us which way to direct our lives to make it through the storm. Go this way. Go that way. No, go this way. No, come this way. Go that way. This is where you're going to be happy and safe. And yet in that dark and stormy sea, there's one voice that signals something very different from the rest. It's Jesus, and he's signaling to us where to go, how to make it through the storm, where true safety is. Jesus is that light in the darkness. And when we as individuals and when we as a community pursue that light of perfection, when we strive to live out all of God's commands in our heads and in our hearts and in our very lives, then we are lighthouses to people lost at sea. That's why we can't abandon the pursuit. That's why we need to come face to face with this truth again and again and again and again. As the worship team comes up, I want us to read one last verse that I think it, it describes perfectly what can and will happen when we commit ourselves as individuals and as a community to being perfect. I'm gonna hold my papers here. I'm gonna give that back. 2 Corinthians 3, should be on the screen behind me. It says, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who's the Spirit. You see, when you sign up to be a Christian, when you sign up to follow Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to be transformed. You're going to be worked upon by God. That's the same verse again. In Matthew 5, we're being perfected, we're being matured, we're being grown up by the Lord. Let's give ourselves over to him. Give ourselves over to that purpose. Be perfect as our Heavenly Father's perfect. So I want to do, just in the last moments of our time, we're going to turn the lights off. I want you to close your eyes. 
We're just spending the time in our thoughts and praying to God. I want you to think through these things with me. I want you to talk to God about your perceived self. Tell him all the ways right now that you feel imperfect. Tell him all the ways you are imperfect. If you're following Jesus right now, ask him to impress upon your heart and your mind in a new way the reality that thanks to Jesus, you are perfect. God looks at you, he sees Jesus and he's pleased and he's happy. Ask him to remind you who you really are, his beloved son, beloved daughter, no matter the good that you do, no matter the bad that you do. If you're not following him and you want to, I don't know, maybe something hits you tonight. Ask him to come into your life. Tell him, God, you're sorry for your sin and you want him, not for any gift, that he can give you, but because he's the gift. Talk to God about the ways that maybe you're making peace with your own sin. What are those areas of life you've stopped pursuing the perfection God requires of you? You've given up. Tell him about it. Last one, ask God how he wants you to be a lighthouse. Ask him for wisdom and courage and energy to do that. That Jesus, the perfection that you require, you have given us through your son, through yourself on that cross. Help us to remember that and help that reality shape way that we live our lives tomorrow, shape the way we live our lives this semester for the rest of our lives. Let the lives of this community in this room be a lighthouse here at Mizzou and in Columbia and bring lost people that are in the darkness into your kingdom of light. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.